Theology Thursday. Uh, we've got some Van Hooza. Van Hooza for you. That sounds so cool. Who's right. a Van Hooza? Who's a Van Hooza? All right, here we go. Van Stay Hooza with us. Van silence mm-hmm. okay you uh you have a head full of hermeneutics right now hermeneutics and we've already established why hermeneutics is a good one for theology thursday so we won't go there again but no. um the yeah so here we are theology thursday and um and you've been looking at some speech act theory so i i came across um i came across speech act theory as an application theologically and in terms of hermeneutics in um, Horton's uh, Systematic. I don't know if you've looked at that in his um, The Christian Faith. Uh, no, no, I haven't. So no. have, you, have you looked at oh, that? Oh, that's interesting to know it's there because I'm going to go and uh, I'll definitely make make a note of that and go and check it out. Oh, totally. Yeah, his uh, elocutionary, perlocutionary, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, that's the one. That's the yeah, one. exactly. Totally. Yeah. No, he's a big speech act theory guy. In fact, that's what Lane Tipton was on his case for. You know, he was, um, you know, just accusing him of all sorts of rambunctious things like being Lutheran and whatnot. And he just didn't like the speech act theory. It just as it relates to justification and all that sort of thing. You know, it gets, Interesting. gets quite crazy. Yeah. So it definitely has theological application, but obviously it has hermeneutical application as well. Um, what have you been thinking about? And why is Van Hooser involved in this story? Well, Van Hooser is basically the big um, spokesperson at the moment for incorporating the speech act theory. So the speech act theory is basically this, that, um, you know, you've got these three, you've got these three <clears throat> kind of aspects to interpreting a text. You've got the author mm-hmm. who has something in mind and something that he intends to uh, to communicate. And then you have the text, which is produced by the author in order to communicate that. And then you have the reader. Mm-hmm. And the author has a context and a worldview and a belief system and everything. And then you have the text, which is the medium. And then you have the reader, who has another context and worldview and, and set of questions and, and all that kind of thing. And all these things are a factor when you're interpreting. Mm. Um but the guys who are like hardcore on um, reading the Bible literally yeah. or the historical <laughs> grammatical principle, mm-hmm. right, as it's technically called, yeah. which uh, it isn't, isn't a bad thing. You know, it, is, it was something that was kind of really recovered in the Reformation, mm-hmm. um, but it got taken kind of to the extremes by dispensationals yeah. who kind of was so concerned with kind of a scientific analysis of a text mm. that they wouldn't allow for anything kind of remotely spiritual or supernatural or allegorical. It just, it had to be straightforward, literal. Yeah. And so things like apology, a dispensational guy will have trouble with because, or the way that the new Testament uses the old, you know, um, like th- things like this are, are, are um, you know, they put it down to inspiration, but it's certainly not a model of how we should read the Bible according to them. 
Yeah. Um, now you've got a guy like Van Drunen, mm-hmm. um, and obviously reformed, even before that, sorry, re- reformed hermeneutics has, has never been exclusively historical grammatical. It's never been exclusively literal. You mean, uh, also sorry, Van, Hoonen, uh, Van Hooser or Van Drunen? Oh, yeah, I said Van, did I say Van Drunen? Yeah. Oh, bro, that's bad news. <laughs> <You know? laughs> <That's> not good. <laughs> I did not want to go down that road again. If I, I, I Van Drunen does not factor into anything I'm going to say in this in this episode. So yeah. if I say Van Drunen, I mean Van Hooser. Well, okay, why don't we settle for now. a compromise? Let's call him Van Hoonen. <laughs> Van Hoonen. <laughs> Is he part of 1689 federal visionism? Uh, totally. He can be if you want him to be. <laughs> all right so van so, hooser yeah okay but before we get to van van hooser mm-hmm. um the the reformation was all about like the historical grammatical sure you got to read the bible essentially literally you got to look for the literal sense but you've also got to be open to how that fits into the context of the whole bible so you've got to you've got to allow for typology you've got to allow for the new testament interpreting the old testament and bringing out a fuller sense of it than what perhaps was immediately apparent mm. and uh, none of those things should contradict you know the historical grammatical exegesis mm-hmm. But it should allow for um, a kind of uh, possibilities of meaning that wouldn't have been obvious mm. to someone uh, in Israel under the Mosaic Covenant mm-hmm. at the time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so Van Hoos is basically doing that, and he's you know encouraging a theological reading of the Bible, which and basically incorporating the speech act theory, which is putting a lot of emphasis on how the reader has to um, not only look at the text and and look at and scientifically analyze what it says but he's also got to then uh, piece that together uh, in order to have a sense of why the author said it yeah and it's only when you get to why the author said it not just what it said that you've actually arrived at the meaning right um and this is obviously a thing of controversy for some yeah. for some people especially yeah. if you're committed to historical grammatical only uh-huh. um and uh yeah so that's that's basically the issue in a nutshell and mm. the, the question really is um where where is the meaning mm. yeah, is the meaning in the text or is the meaning behind the text mm. or is the meaning in the author's intention mm. and so then then who's saying that, that meaning it doesn't lie simply um in what the text says it lies in our understanding of why the text said it as well the author's intention mm. and so this also has like a knock-on effect to the way that we understand inerrancy mm-hmm. so a lot of guys um and a lot of the guys behind the chicago statements of biblical inerrancy mm-hmm. um also produced a document uh, that's l- less well known mm-hmm. uh, which is the chicago statement on biblical hermeneutics mm-hmm. uh, which goes kind of along with that right and the the controversy is that in the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy, which is like, it's a weird document because it's not connected to any ecclesial authority. Mm-hmm. You know, so it doesn't actually have any authority, but right. it kind of represents at the same time a kind of consensus agreement. It's the shibboleth. 
Yeah. The problem with it, and there is a fantastic article written by some guy I've never heard of named Oss, Douglas Oss. Okay. Oss. I don't know. And um, <laughs> I've heard of him. And, I've heard of him. I think he's a famous guy. Yeah, he might be a famous oh, no, guy. Wait, I'm thinking famous of Oz, Oz Guinness. No, yeah, not yeah, Oz Guinness. No. So it's spelled the same. Okay. No, it's not. No, uh, it's not even spelled the so same. Let's, so let's call totally him. Different let's call him Oz. Oz, yeah. Oss. So anyway, Oz has basically pointed out. <laughs> wait, wait, that, wait. Let's call him. Let's call him Oz. Oz. <laughs> just to bring a little comic relief <laughs> every time you say us it's not us though it's us uh, okay, but, but you spell us. it like like Japanese us like us sensei us. <laughs> I don't know bro this is descending you know like madness so yeah. uh, what was I going to say the the whole thing is like what is your view of inerrancy so yeah. if your view of inerrancy is that the Bible <laughs> is literally true in everything that it says mm. um, in regardless of what the author's intention was just the text itself it does not does not have any error yeah, and that sounds like obviously as an evangelical, yeah, you know, as, as some of the high view of the Bible, it sounds good. Yeah, except except it's highly problematic because, um, you know, it, it this kind of stuff we brush aside today, mm. like the four corners of the earth thing, mm. is because our view of inerrancy is tied to the author's intention, mm-hmm. um, and uh, so we would we'd happily brush aside. Well, no, obviously <clears throat> the Bible doesn't teach that there are four corners of the earth. There's no error there. Mm. Um, it's simply using a figure of speech. The author's intention yeah. was not for us to go, ah, oh, there are four corners of the earth. Yeah. Let me write a geography textbook yeah. about this. Mm. Um, it's not the author's intention, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, so saying that the Bible is literally true in everything that it says and all of the facts that it presents, regardless of author's intention, sounds good, but it, it's really, it, there's a lot of problems. Yeah. It's not simple. Yeah. Um, but also, if you say that um, the your view of inerrancy is that it's only what the author intended in terms of kind of redemptive, the big plot of redemptive salvation history, then are you saying that actually the history doesn't matter? Yeah. Because that's all problematic. And that's where some guys have gone with this. They've gone, you know, sort of, even though calling themselves evangelicals, they've gone to that end of the extreme and, and basically written off, you know, Genesis 1 to 11 as being not historical. Right. Um, and, and things like that. Because yeah. it's, you know... So, um, so it's it's not it's not a simple issue, yeah. but um, but it does. It's an important thing to think through. Like, yeah. where is the meaning? Does the meaning lie in the text itself, yeah. or does the meaning lie in the author's intention behind the text? Mm. Um, and if so, how does that affect our view of the Bible? And if it affects our, our view of the Bible, how does that affect the way that we read the Bible? Mm. Yeah. You know, for example, when you preach, uh-huh. do you just preach the text? Or do you try and get at the author's intention behind the text? Yeah. 
Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah, without a doubt, you know, you're going for the author's intention. And even then you got the question of like little A author or big A author, you know? Um, yeah, exactly. In that yeah. you've got the census planner to deal with and, you know, this, the, the trajectory of, of redemptive history that perhaps was even beyond the purview of the intention of the, the little A author, you know, um, which is another thing entirely. Well, that's, I suppose, where you bring that redemptive hermeneutic in as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's um it is it is uh, a, a a very important thing because obviously um you know we have to recognize that while God the main author is at work through human authors God is the author. He is yeah. the ultimate author. Yeah. Which means that automatically there are possibilities for meaning um that are just different to the case if it was, was purely human authors without yeah. there being a divine author. Yeah. You know, yeah. we have that has to be true. There has to be something. You, you know, you, you have to read Genesis in the light of Re- Revelation and Re- Revelation in the light of Genesis. Mm. You just have to because it, we're not just given one book. We're given a whole Bible. Yeah. Uh, we're given a whole canon, a whole salvation history. And God knew what was going to be in Revelation when he was giving Genesis, you know. Yeah. Yeah. When Genesis was written, he already had Revelation in mind. So, like, it's like, and of course, that's gonna that's gonna go beyond the the understanding mm. of the people who were the original readers of Genesis. You know, totally. of course, it is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's just you know, I remember reading in Horton as well. Even just um, you know, just dialing it back a little bit uh, in the conversation to just thinking about this um, speech act stuff. Um, you know, you have what is like human language, if you just think about it, you know, obviously, again, it's very, very profound. One mm. of the things that's just a while ago, I read uh, Vern Poitras's uh, thing on, on language. I'd actually be interested to go and read it again now, um, just in light of everything I've, I've recently discovered about perspectivalism and that sort of thing. But but uh, he probably was pulling some of his uh, perspectival guru stuff going on there, um, back with language and just showing how in intricately it is connected to um you know what 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 god has given to man i mean you think about god creates by the word here we are speaking to each other in the image of god i mean it's just it really is quite an amazing thing you know the word is revealing who god is to us it's the 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 language convention thing is frighteningly important uh, at so many different levels and he really brings that out but where i was going with that is you know to reduce language to a kind of calculus um yeah, you know, or a calculative reasoning uh, is just, you know, that's that that sort of feels like historical grammatical does a little bit in that you you're just sort of processing the sausage, you know, just getting it through that yeah. historical gra- grammatical sausage making machine, and um, and everyone knows you kind of got to do something of that because otherwise you just you're gonna head you got no ties to the ground anymore you you you're gonna just fly off in some sort of allegorical thing, but yet it's I mean human language is not simply a type of calculus it's uh it's not just grammar it's that the words the context the speaker they intend something they it's dynamic you know it's a dynamic form yeah it's a dynamic tool of human communication and even divine communication so there is something more than just the the sausage making machine yeah and i mean even there is also like what is what is behind this is um, is a skepticism about you know modern and postmodern trends yeah. in um, literary 
uh, what do you call it? Um, you know, critical literary studies. Yeah. What's the word? Literary criticism. That's right. it. Right. Um, so um, there's a skepticism towards that because it's all postmodern and it's all liberal mm, and mm. nobody believes in objective truth mm. and or, or objective meaning. And they're, th and they're saying, that, you know, well, if you start to go down this route, then is there actually an objective meaning? How mm. are you ever meant to know? Mm. And of course, nobody's saying that. And, I mean, and that's important. We are saying that actually there is an objective meaning to be found. But like Vern Poitras points out, that actually you just have to be a little bit careful that you're not you're not thinking essentially like an enlightenment rationalist right yeah where you believe that actually the use of your scientific methods will make you a master of the truth you know like you have your little text you apply your methods and you master the subject like mm, it, mm. as we've just been talking about you know in back in whatever Wednesday mm. yesterday, mm. Uh, you know, the Bible is just, you just can't do it. Like you can't walk away from a text thinking I've mastered it. Mm. Uh, it, it just, so there is a, a bit of, a bit of the, the positive stuff that's come out of postmodernism is, it's just the humility of yes. recognizing yes. actually there is a limit to what your scientific methods can actually achieve. Right. There is something about like language that's always going to be, and, and there is something about meaning as well that is connected to the reader. So, you know, it, it's true. I need to first discover what the author's intention is through a careful analysis of the text. Mm -hmm. And then I can discover what the author said and why the author said it. And then I can start to say, how does it have an impact on me? You know, what are the implications for me? Oh but, my goodness. Do you know what you've just done? What have I done? Oh my goodness. You have just come up with a triad. And, and <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not even, Stop. just say what you said again. We've got to start off with the normative perspective, which is basically just figure, <laughs> and then go to the situational and then end up in the existential. That's what you just said. That's, that's the triad. Well, right well didn't I, didn't I tell you about this? What? Didn't I tell you about, about the triad? Do you so know, there I am do you know that the framework theory, the framework theory, the framework theory <laughs> yeah, know. has I triads know in it and it's called Stop. the framework theory. Bro, oh, no. there's just someone's messing mind with my blown. Mind. Thing about what you said now was just that that is the whole existential application of hermeneutics. I mean, the, sorry, the tripospectival thing. It, it, you just yeah. literally nailed it. It is. So, I'm afraid yeah. might, might be on oh, no. something. To be fair, Poitras, um, in his uh, hermeneutics thing, he does do exactly that. Yeah. He basically. <laughs> Yeah. talks about the triad so, so so it is there yeah it's i mean for sure yeah. <laughs> <laughs> whether whether or not i'm prepared to to prepared to make it a thing i don't know oh, but right. it's like a wave it's coming mm. for us it's coming for us it's the triperspectival <laughs> wave i just finished reading uh, i'm uh, worrying about you mike you're talking about frame uh, and the triad bro what is and going I'm having on lunch with john frame you know i know i know i'm getting cozy but you know what i like to know my enemy oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah anyway okay so what are we talking about well i think we nailed it i don't think there's any reason to say anything more on that it's done um mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. it, one thing maybe um if anyone is wondering what um elocutionary and perlocutionary and all that stuff is and if they want to check out some more because we haven't really covered the systematic angles uh go check out michael horton i mean you should if you listen to this show 
you should have my Cortons systematic on hand close by. So just um, if you if it's on Kindle, Google those words and um, or uh, or at least Kindle search them, and that'll that'll take you to the spot where he deals with it. I think it's in, entitled Speech Act Theory or something uh, directly. Um, but otherwise, Van Hoos is a good dude. I want to read more of him. Yeah, I like Van Hooser. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like tentative in saying that because I really don't know enough, but I feel like he's just making some serious waves in academia. Wow. Yeah, he's. Um, I, th- I think he. I think he speaks sense. You, you, you got to. He's walking a fine line, um, but I think it's a line that needs to be walked. Right. You know? Yeah. Um. So yeah, it's good. Okay. It's good. I, I think um I think the bottom line is that uh you just can't rely you just can't be all rationalist. You yeah. know. Yeah. There is there is an element of scientific method to studying the Bible, but it's just much more than that. Totally. Yeah. Well, this will be a conversation, no doubt, that we will uh go down further in terms of uh, I know that you're not gonna be you're gonna be thinking about it for a while longer. Um, mm-hmm. and so probably we'll have to return to it again and again, <laughs> just cause you're probably it'll be, it'll end up frame on hermeneutics <laughs> or something crazy. That's it'll be like be, Monday yeah. is about John frame. Tuesday is about hermeneutics. <laughs> Wednesday is about frame on hermeneutics. <laughs> oh man. I'm kind of bad. It's midnight. All right. That's it. That's a wrap folks. Thanks bro. Appreciate it. No worries. No worries.